What is the most powerful human emotion? All right, so think about that question for yourself. What is the most powerful human emotion? Perhaps the first thing that drops into your mind is love. You know, that feeling of the uh, falling in love, the sweaty palms, the beating heart, the butterflies in your stomach whenever you get to see the person that you've fallen in love with. It's a powerful emotion. Then there's joy as well. The joy that we feel when we succeed in our exams or when we do well in our job or when we have a new baby or when we receive some good news or the joy that comes as the, as the thrill of adrenaline rushes through our veins after riding a roller coaster or we celebrate a victory or we have a good laugh with our mates. But then there's those harder emotions as well, isn't there? The melancholy, the frustration stress and boredom that we can feel. Or there's the anger and bitterness and betrayal that we feel when someone sins against us. Or there's the the guilt and the regret and the shame and the embarrassment that we feel when we do something that's wrong or when we sin against someone else. Or there's the grief and the sorrow and the depression that hits us when life is tough and suffering strikes all very powerful emotions. And yet I'd submit to you this morning that perhaps the most powerful emotion of all is fear. Now, just like Eskimos who supposedly have 40 plus words to describe different kinds of snow, we have an incredible number of English words to describe fear. For words like uneasy, worried, nervous, anxious, tense, uptight, stressed, spooked, haunted, scared, afraid, petrified, terrified, panicked. They're all somewhere on the spectrum at different points, perhaps, but they all express some version of the same core experience, fear. And fear grips us all in various ways at various times in, in, to differing degrees. It can be for nervous nail biting for some people to paralyzing fear that stops us from doing anything or going out. And I expect many of us have been confronted with fear to some degree during this pandemic, whether it have been fear of isolation, fear of sickness, fear of suffering, fear of losing a loved one or fear of death. We've all been hit by it, I'm sure. Perhaps as we approach the new normal that we're told about on, in the media, that there's a growing sense of fear within your heart about what life is going to be like. Will you keep your job? Will you face financial hardship? Will the people that you've met online in the coffee and chats, will they accept you or reject you when you're in the flesh together? Will you slip back into old habits and patterns and ways? Will you be diagnosed with cancer or dementia? Or maybe the most common one is just that fear of missing out. Perhaps it's even fear of leaving lockdown because through these past 13 weeks or so, you have enjoyed the sense of comfort and control that lockdown has given to your life. And you don't really want to give that up and go back into the real world. Fear grips us all. So the question is, how then can we address our fears in whatever form they take? Well, fortunately, Matthew chapter 14 helps us. 
Now, if you remember last week, we looked at verses 13 to 21, where we saw how the disciples were cultivating faith, the, what they experienced, cultivated faith in their hearts as they saw the great need. In the face of great need, faith was cultivated in their hearts as they saw Jesus as compassionate, as in control, and as enough for everybody who comes to him. Now, this week in verses 22 to 33, we're going to see how the disciples cultivate fear, uh, cultivate faith in the face of fear. Okay, so let's read together from verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And then Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they had got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Let me pray and then we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. Please help us now to understand it by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might cultivate faith in you and in your son, even in the face of the fears that we all face. We pray that you would speak now, that we'd hear your voice, that your word would accomplish all that you've determined it to do to strengthen us in our walk with Christ. We ask this for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, verses 22 to 23 reveal five truths about Jesus. They are wonderful truths uh, at all times, but especially during fearful, dark and difficult days. So it's crucial to remember these truths both today and tomorrow, next week and next month and next year. In fact, we need to remember these whenever we're tossed to and fro by the storms of life. The first truth that we see in this uh, story, this encounter, is that Jesus is sovereign over you and me. Jesus is sovereign over you and me. In verse 22, Jesus has just fed 15 to 20,000 people, men, women, and children, with a miraculous and memorable meal of fish finger sandwiches. Then we learn from John's account of this story in John chapter 6, that the crowd was so impressed with what Jesus had done that they were ready to make him king right there, right then, right on the spot. Now, Jesus tames this kind of messianic uprising and uproar by urgently making the disciples get into a boat and go across to the other side, and he'll meet them there while he dismisses the crowd. But in verse 24, we hear that the boat is, has gone a long way out into the, into the Sea of Galilee. It's a long way from land, and a violent and strong and uh, vicious storm suddenly erupts. 
with the wind and the waves, we're told, beating against the boat. That word beating there literally would, would re should be rendered tormenting the boat. It's a, it's a word used when uh, people are demon-possessed and tormented by evil spirits. So it's the same kind of word. It's a, it's a strong, violent storm that's tormenting the disciples in the boat. So imagine the, the scene. It's nighttime, it's dark, and there is a stormy chaos that they are facing. It's a fear-inducing scene of terror, even for professional fishermen. But don't miss what verse 22 says, because it was Jesus's idea to put the disciples into the boat and send them across the Sea of Galilee. And it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a series of unfortunate events. It was part of his plan, part of his good purposes for his disciples. The whole scene here in verses 22 to 33 is by divine design, as Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the king who rules the waves. And so you and I, we've got to remember this truth when we're faced with the difficult circumstances that can breed fear. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he put the disciples in the boat that would end up in the storm. He was not unaware of what they would face. He was not caught off guard. And the same could be true of our lives. He knows exactly what he is doing when he puts us in the boat and sends us into the storms of life. He's not unaware of what we will face and he's not caught off guard. In fact, Jesus is very familiar with all of our situations and our weaknesses. And he's sovereign over both our lives and our trials. And he is providentially working out all things for the good of those who love him. Consider these scriptures that should be in the notes if you printed them out. Hebrews 4 verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to his throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Or Romans 8, 28, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let this truth, the truth that Jesus is sovereign over your life and your trials and your storms, begin to cultivate fear, a faith in the face of fear. Now, the second truth that we see is that Jesus is praying for you. In verse 23, while the disciples are being tossed back and forth on the waves of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is on a mountainside on his knees praying to his father. Now, we're not told in Matthew chapter 14 what the burden of Jesus's prayer was, but I reckon that the disciples in the storm weren't going to be far away from his prayers at that particular moment. And I Support that with other evidence from the New Testament, where you, you read all the way through the New Testament Gospels that the compassionate heart of Jesus for his people leads him to pray often to his father for them. So during this time when the disciples are battling the storm, Jesus is sovereignly holding both the wind and the waves in his hand, and he's holding his people in his prayers. And when we face the storms of life, we can be sure that Jesus is praying for us too. 
Consider again the words of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, where it says about Jesus that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Or again, Romans 8, verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, let me ask you another question. When you and I think about the work of Jesus, we probably, if you're like me, focus on the past work of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection to save us. But what do we think Jesus is doing right now? Perhaps we have a misguided understanding that he's up in heaven, feet up, twiddling his thumbs, waiting for the day when he can saddle his white horse and ride on the clouds back down to this earth to make an end to all sorrow, sin and suffering and make all things new. But for the time being, he's just killing time. Well, that's not how the New Testament presents the current work of Jesus. He's not an extended, on an extended holiday in paradise. He's ceaselessly working by praying for his people. You see, the, the compassionate heart of Christ that beats so strongly for his disciples and the sick and the demon-possessed in the New Testament beats just as strongly now as it did back then. And it led him then to pray for his people, and it leads him now to pray and intercede for us, for you and me. So if you take nothing else from this sermon this morning, hear this. Jesus is praying for you right now. Now imagine if you could hear Jesus play, praying aloud in the room next door to you, how that would shape and frame and make you think differently about the circumstances and the situations of life that you faced. If you could hear him praying audibly for you right now, I think it would make all of us less fearful. And yet the reality is that Jesus is at this very moment at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven, interceding for you and for me in all of the storms that induce fear that we're facing. And there are few things that can calm our jittery and fearful hearts more deeply than that reality dawning on us. Jesus is praying for you right now now. So let this truth that Jesus is praying for you sink in and let it begin to cultivate faith in the face of fear. Now, third truth, Jesus is present with you. Bible scholars reckon that it was between seven and nine o'clock in the evening when the fish finger leftovers had been cleared away and Jesus packed his disciples off into his boat into the boat. Then in verse 25, it tells us that Jesus came out to the disciples in the storm during the fourth watch of the night, which was between 3 and 6 a.m. So by best guess and estimates, the disciples had been in the storm for somewhere between 6 and 11 hours. All right, 6 and 11 hours, they had been facing a tormenting storm. And Matthew does his best to contrast the torment and the chaos of the winds and the, the waves and the agitation of the disciples who think that they're seeing ghosts with the calmness of Jesus who walks on the water out to meet them as if the tormenting waves are solid ground. 
And Jesus walking on the water out to his disciples in the midst of the storm is designed to bring hope and reassurance on a few different levels. So firstly, there's a level of how the Jews understood the sea. The, the sea for us might conjure up uh, images and thoughts of surfing and sandcastles and fresh air and fun. And we're hoping that Boris is going to lift the restrictions on the 4th of June and we can all go to the beach and to the sea for a holiday because we love the beach and the sea. We love the sand and we love the swimming and we love everything contained, uh, you know, within that idea of going on holiday to the beach. But for Jews, the sea was not fun and laughter and holidays. It conjured up images of evil and chaos and danger and destruction. It was unpredictable. It was changeable. It was out of control. And so you see in, in the Old Testament, in places like Daniel chapter 7, four monsters, these kind of um, four uh, abominations, if you like, come out of the sea and they go on to plague God's people. But they come out of the sea. And even in the New Testament, in Revelation chapter 13, it is the beast that emerges from the sea. So the sea was a place of chaos and it represented evil and danger and destruction. So one walking out on the waves in a chaotic, stormy night where there's torment, who is unaffected, well, it has overtones of deity. It, who but God alone could walk on water and walk on the sea, walk on the stormy sea. The image is supposed to indicate the sovereignty of Jesus and his control over everything, that he, is, he has unconquerable power, he has invincible power over all that the sea threatens, that the sea and all that it contains and all that it represents is no match for this Jesus. But then he speaks. He gets out to them, having walked on the water, and Jesus speaks to them. And he says this, doesn't he, in uh, verse 20, 30, <coughs> sorry, verse 27. Take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. So he says, take heart. Take courage. Don't be afraid. Why? And then he says, it is I. More literally, he uses the um, <coughs> the the the. The statement that God uses in Exodus chapter 3, I am is here. So he says, take heart, don't be afraid, I am is here. This, this speech that he gets, this one sentence that he speaks to his disciples is dripping with Old Testament meaning because it has those echoes of when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, that I am. He announces himself as the God who is. I am is here. And Jesus uses that exact phraseology right here in the midst of the storm to encourage his disciples. I am is here. Take courage. Don't be afraid. See, this is no ghost. This is God himself, the great I am in the flesh, present with his people to help them in their time of need. He's Yahweh, God over all. And therefore his people do not need to fear anything. But then also don't miss this important truth. Jesus uses the storm as a pathway to greater revelation of himself to his disciples. Okay. Jesus uses the storm as a pathway to greater revelation of himself to his disciples. The difficult situation that they were in is the very thing that Jesus used to draw near to them and to reveal something new about himself. 
to reveal something deeper and richer and greater about who he was and what he was able to do for them. And Jesus does the same thing today for you and me. Our journeys and our passageways through the storms of life, whatever they may be, are opportunities and pathways sovereignly ordained by Jesus for him to draw near to us and to reveal himself as the great I am in new and fresher and deeper ways than he could ever have done previously, that we could have previously imagined, sorry. And he meets us in those moments so that we might be encouraged by his voice. Take courage. Do not be afraid. I am is here. Let that cultivate faith in the face of fear this morning. I love what David Platt, a commentator on the book of Matthew, says when he writes, there is no question that God sovereignly ordains trials in our lives at various points in order to reveal his character and nature to us in ways that we would never have known apart from the storm. And it is in the middle of the storm that the presence of Christ becomes all the more real. He is with us. Therefore, we have no reason to fear. You know, there is nothing so, nothing so powerfully quenches the fire, fire of fear than the presence of someone you love and trust. Think about children when they're fearful in the middle of the night. Who do they cry out for? They cry out for mom or they cry out for dad because nothing so powerfully quenches the fire of their fear in that moment and the presence of someone they love and trust. So let me ask you a question. What are you passing through right now? What is the situation or the storm that you're experiencing right now? Jesus has not abandoned you or forsaken you or left you to fend for yourself in this moment. He is using the storm. It has been providentially ordained by him as a pathway for him to draw near to you and reveal something greater and richer about who he is and what he is able to do for you in that moment. And he would say to you, therefore, you do not need to be afraid. J.C. Ryle writes this. Christ may allow his people to be tossed to and fro by storms of trouble for a season. He may be later than they wish in coming to their aid and may not draw near until the fourth watch of the night when they have been wearied, but he is in control. The storms do not move without his permission. The Lord of all is mightier than the mighty winds and the waters may be deep and churning, but with Christ's presence and strength, we need not be afraid. Jesus is sovereign over you. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is present with you. And fourthly, Jesus will strengthen you. In verses 28 to 31, this is unique to Matthew's gospel, as impetuous Peter wants to walk on the water out to Jesus. It's a pretty bold request. Uh, he says, Lord, if it's you, that's what the, the, uh, the English rendering is, but it would be better probably to say, Lord, since it's you, let me come out to you. So Peter recognized who Jesus was in that moment, and he trusted that with the presence and power of Jesus, he could join him on the water. He knew that it was impossible for him in himself, but with Jesus, all things are possible. 
And so Jesus invites him to take a step of faith and Peter steps out of the boat and starts walking towards Jesus on the water. Now, don't miss the miraculous. It was miraculous that Jesus could walk on the water. It's even more incredible that he allows and helps Peter to do it. And it reveals the strength and the enabling power that Jesus gives to all who will trust in him. And the same Jesus can strengthen you and me in the face of the storms that we are experiencing, if we will look to him for strength and help. The same Jesus who helped Peter to walk on the water is the same Jesus who can empower us to do what we never thought we could possibly do. It's the same Jesus who enabled Peter to walk on the stormy water, who will help us to do the things that we would never dare to do without him. Now, we're not sure how far Peter gets, but we're told that eventually he becomes distracted by the wind and the power of the wind. And he takes his eyes off Jesus and focusing on the danger of the wind made his faith shrink and his feet begin to sink. And it wasn't that Jesus had changed or had got further away or was more distant or was no longer there. He somehow vanished. And it wasn't that the storm had got more tempestuous. It wasn't any of those things. What happened was Peter doubted Jesus's presence and power in the face of the storm, and he gave in to unbelief, and he began to sink. And I think this account is here that we might learn from Peter's example. His shift of focus away from Jesus, who strengthened him to walk on the water and overcome the storm, to the focus of the danger of the storm, it it was almost disastrous. And so for you and I, we need to learn the lesson that in the storms of life and the things that cause us to fear, if our faith is in ourselves, in our power, in our own abilities, in our perceived control over circumstances, or if our faith is in someone else or something else other than Jesus, we will eventually sink. But when our eyes are fixed on our sovereign, loving, gracious, compassionate, gentle and lowly, merciful Savior and King, we can rest securely in him. Jesus will say elsewhere in John 16, verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, our fears don't dissipate or disappear through us being stronger. They dissipate and disappear by us trusting in Jesus, who is all strength. It's just as Jesus promised Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So let this truth, that Jesus will come to strengthen us in the face of the storm, help us to cultivate faith in the face of fear. And then finally, Jesus will rescue you. There's even more good news here, that even when we fail, even when we take our eyes off Jesus, even when our feet begin to sink because of unbelief and doubt, Jesus is merciful to rescue us when we cry out to him. In verse 31, as Peter begins to sink beneath the waves and they begin to engulf him, Jesus takes hold of him. He had Peter immediately tightly in the grip of his grace and he pulled him up and he pulled him clear of the danger. 
He didn't leave G. Uh, he didn't leave Peter to reap the fruit of his unbelief and sink deeper into misery, stormy chaos. But he knew Peter's feebleness. He heard his cry, and he was on hand and ready to help him immediately. And he pulls him out. It's what the psalmist says in Psalm 94, verse 18. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. So you and I, when we fail, when we sink, when we doubt, when we fear, the good news is that Jesus, in his mercy, is close to us. He's ready to take hold of us and to raise us up again. He will bring us back. He will get into our boat and all will be well. As I was thinking about this, it reminded me of the hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. When I fear my faith may fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. And I can never keep my hold on him through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, but he will hold me fast. And then in verse 32, they climb into the boat together and immediately the storm stops and Jesus brings complete peace to the situation. For when Jesus is in your boat, you are safe, whatever the storms of life you may face. So let this truth, that Jesus will rescue you mercifully, help you to cultivate faith in the face of fear. And then in verse 33, the climax of the whole chapter, both the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children and the events through the storm, when the disciples saw that Jesus can provide for needy sinners, when the disciples saw that he was present with them in the storm, when the disciples saw that he can mercifully rescue doubting sinners from a raging sea, they recognized him in a new light and they worshipped him. And this morning, as we read Matthew 14 together, may our eyes be filled with, fresh, with a fresh vision of Jesus. May these five truths, Jesus is sovereign over you, Jesus is praying for you, Jesus is present with you, Jesus will strengthen you and Jesus will rescue you. May they cultivate faith in the face of our fears. And may we worship the one who both satisfies the hungry and needy and saves the perishing. Let's pray.